I read for us from the beginning of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. If you want to follow along, there's pew Bibles in most of the pews. It'll also be on the screen. This is from verse 1 to 11. From Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all those in Philippi who are God's people in Christ Jesus, along with your supervisors and servants. May the grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I thank my God every time I mention you in my prayers. I'm thankful for all of you every time I pray, and it's always a prayer full of joy. I'm glad because of the way you've been my partners in the ministry of the gospel from the time you first believed until now. I'm sure about this. The one who started a good work in you will stay with you to complete the job by the day of Christ Jesus. I have good reason to think this way about you all because I keep you in my heart. You are all my partners in God's grace, both during my time in prison and in the defense and support of the gospel. God is my witness that I feel affection for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. So this is my prayer, that your love might become even more and more rich with knowledge and all kinds of insight. I pray this, that you'll be able to decide what really matters so you will be sincere and blameless on the day of Christ. I pray that you'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes from Christ Jesus, in order to give glory and praise to God. This is God's word for God's people. Um, pray with me. And Father, uh, open our hearts uh, to, your, to you. Uh, open our hearts to your word that it might work in our lives and work into our lives. Uh, we thank you for, for this letter. Um, we thank you uh, that you count us as recipients of your, your words and your word, Christ Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think this, that summertime is an especially good time to let God's word like work in you and work on you. Um, I think around here, like summer feels like a time of like contraction, like expansion and contraction. People are here, there, and everywhere. But I, I've always thought summer is a good, good time for Bible study. Um, and that's why we do kind of a continuous study. We've done that the last couple of years. Two years ago, we did Ephesians, and last year we did the life of David. It's something that you can come into and out of when you're going on vacation, um, and uh, something that you can you, you can let work on you over a prolonged period of time. Each week in our series, um, this summer we'll have these little scripture cards, and they were on the table when you came in, and. Uh, Try to grab one and keep it in your front pocket or in your wallet or like put it on your mirror and say it to yourself. And, and this is a good way to memorize scripture and, and kind of to hide it in you to the point where you don't necessarily have to think about it. It's just in you. Um, you can also like challenge a roommate if you're really competitive or like uh, or a spouse or something about who can do this better, though that's not really what this is about. 
But I was amazed um, when we started talking about Philippians, so many people, including like my wife, um, uh, so, like kind of smiled when we said, oh, we're gonna study Philippians. Like it was that smile like, oh, I have an inside track on this. And like, cause a lot of people memorize like large swaths of Philippians. Like I didn't know this was a thing, but like my, my wife like offhand is like, oh yeah, when I was in eighth grade, I memorized the whole letter of Philippians. And I was like, but did you do it in Greek? You know, uh, <laughs> or like a lot of people was like, I've, I memorized chapter two, you know, or I memorized like large parts of this. And, and I wonder, I wonder what is it really about this letter that resonates? Maybe it's because it's, it's short. The, that could be one thing. Like, but if, if that was the case, people would be memorizing Philemon or Jude or whatever, right? Like, um, maybe it's perhaps that, that joy keeps cropping up in this letter. Like over and over, like there's four chapters and Paul talks about joy or rejoicing like 15 times in the span of four small chapters. I even think he, he becomes kind of aware or self-conscious of how many times he's saying this because like in chapter four he says, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice and so like he's aware of it but he doesn't he didn't care. Like <laughs> he's, he's going to spur them on to joy. You know, like it's it, the way he talks about that, like to, to say to someone rejoice again, I say rejoice. It's almost like he's talking about joy. Like it's, it's a choice or that joy that can become a habit. And as I, as I was studying, I was thinking about uh, joy in this letter or joy in, in my life or joy that I've observed in many of y'all's lives, I think joy might be like the most elusive and paradoxical thing in the world, at least one of them, right? Try to define joy like in your head or like write, scribble some notes or do that later today or this week. And I guarantee you most of the things that you like write down or think of for joy, like if you actively tried to pursue those things, you either could not get them or they would not be very joyful once you got there. You know, like um, that's a strange thing uh, that we try to chase joy, but we rarely get it. C.S. Lewis wrote um, about his experience becoming a Christian. He had been an atheist and he became a Christian and he describes it in terms of, of being surprised by joy. That's the name of the book. Um, but even, even in there, there's, he describes joy and he says, all joy reminds. He says, joy is never a possession. It's always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be which is super frustrating, right? <laughs> uh, again, I, I think he, you know, he says joy is always backwards or forwards, but it's hardly ever in the present tense. I mean, I, I think about like my parents or like my in-laws always, when they talk about joy, they talk about um, uh, going on beach vacations to like North Carolina beaches when they were first newlyweds and they, they got married pretty young. They would go to North Carolina beaches and they didn't have any money and they would vacation with a couple and they get a one room 
like beach house apartment or whatever, and they would get cinnamon rolls out of the vending machine and heat them up on the on the um, iron, right? And they speak about this so joyfully, and like that would be joy for them. I'll tell you, I'm getting ready to go to the beach with my in-laws like after the service, like I'm getting on a plane. And if I suggested that we pack into a one-room apartment and eat, you know, iron-heated cinnamon rolls, I don't think it would be received with joy. You know, like joy has this, (laughs) seems to have this like expiration date or like we can only describe it in hindsight. Like think about like how parents talk about they're little kids, and they talk about like, oh, those first six months were so joyful. But like, do you realize what was happening to your to you during those first six months? Like, you somehow forget like the anxiety that you're gonna have to keep this human being alive, or the sleep deprivation, and like how weird you, how weirdly reclusive you became. Uh, but it was all joy in hindsight, or like. When we when we look at pictures for trips that we took, like we forget like how cranky we were to the people we were with, but the pictures look awesome, you know. Or like a relationship that we were a part of, or like grad school or grade school, like middle school was so awesome. <laughs> right. <laughs> when is the last time you experienced joy? Could you do it again if you tried, or is it just like fleeting? Is joy just a vapor? How much of our lives is either spent trying to relive joy, like to recapture that thing, or to find a new joy, or maybe we've just completely given up on the prospect of joy because we're just not good at joy. <laughs> right? like, that's some, you know, uh, never mind. Uh, <coughs> Today, we'll embark on a study of this letter from Paul to the church at Philippi, and it's a letter written from prison. Um, It's a letter, like, there's there's five of 13 New Testament letters are written from prison, and this one is one of them, and this one in particular is more or less about joy. Maybe that's a good hint for us that you could couple joy in prison, uh, joy out of prison, and then joy from prison to these people in Philippi who are suffering. Who, the, Philippi is one of the earliest Christian church communities, and they're, they're having a go. Like they're, they're not fitting in, and they're not trying to fit in, and they're being pressed on every side. Yeah, Paul's talking about joy, and and I don't think they received it as like some <laughs> some kind of letter that had no idea what they were going through. Paul, if anyone knows what they're going through, this might give us an, a kind of clue us in on something essentially true about joy, where it can be found and what it is. But we'll spend the summer not focused on joy per se, but focused on on Jesus, because again, like joy is fleeting and elusive, and like you can't approach it head on. You kind of got to come at it from the side, or like tell it slant. Like 
Um, next month on the 21st of August, there's going to be a complete solar eclipse. Does anyone know about this? Like it happens like once, a complete one happens like once in a century or something. And I think Asheville is in the path. There's this weird path of complete 100%. But like a solar eclipse, you are not supposed to, though my children, especially Titus, will probably try to look at it head on. Like you should not look at a solar eclipse head on. Um, though I think you can look at a complete solar eclipse head on for like 10 seconds or whatever. Our timing's not that good. We're not very coordinated. Um, but I think like a, like a solar eclipse, like uh, that's a little bit how joy is. It's fleeting and we dare not come at it head on. We come at it from an angle. Maybe we'll even be surprised by joy. But I think in, in our study of this and when it keeps popping up in our, our scripture, in our scripture memory, I think here's the cool thing is that Paul's vision of joy in the gospel of Jesus is, is big enough to account for, for things like, like suffering. It's big enough to account for like the real things that are on our mind. Um, we receive this letter like the church of Philippi, not as some like disconnected, disembodied, like peppy motivational talk, but something that really lands with where we are and what we're doing. It, it's, it, it has something to say to the things that make us want to give up or give in because the, the church at Philippi was, was threatened with just that scenario of giving up or giving in. How this is all connected uh, reminds me just a little bit, and this is not really a plug, but kind of a plug for our mustard seed groups. The other night in, in our Friday night group, we're talking through this book uh, by Jim Smith called The Good and Beautiful God, and it's dealing with the ways we consider God, the narratives and stories that we have about God that maybe we uncover uh, things that we think about God that we didn't know that we thought about God. And this week was on God's trustworthiness, our ability to trust God and that God is worthy of our trust. And it talked about Jesus trusting God in the Garden of Gethsemane. To refresh you guys, before Jesus took the cross, he, he went with a couple of his friends into the garden. Asked, he asked them to stay with them, to keep watch, and he brought them, he brought them right into his agony and his uncertainty. And then Mark 14 says, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass him. He cried out, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but your will be done. Somehow, despite what was happening to Jesus and what would happen to him, Jesus was able to trust not because it was clear how it would work out. Not really even because God would somehow like prevent Jesus from pain or death. But because God's love, God the Father's love for Jesus was big enough for that pain and that death to, to fit inside. For Jesus, God's, God's personality was was trustworthy, was strong enough to be 
trusted. So he could say, you could do this, but even if you don't, I'm with you. That's why Hebrews, which um, is is a little bit of a different kind of letter because Paul didn't write it, uh, but Hebrews is able to re to re-narrate this what's happening to Jesus and what Jesus embraces in chapter 12 after after talking about all these people that trusted God. Chapter 12 says that we're to, to run with perseverance and fix our eyes on Jesus who, who began and ends our faith, the, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then it has this little tag that is really telling. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Hebrews is doing the same thing Paul is doing like consistently here. He's pairing suffering and pain with joy. Something that we, we don't normally think together. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Somehow, like he, somehow Hebrews, like the Apostle Paul in Philippians, is able to hold these things side by side, hold them together. I think I've, I've seen this a little bit lately, and it's an interesting thing to live like in cultural lags. Um, here's what I mean by that: like you have these different amounts of times that it takes for human beings to like process things, right? So like some people, some people that you know like are able to process things pretty fast. They get, they like emotionally get over something maybe because they're emotionally dull or because they're emotionally advanced, but they like can process and move on. Normally it takes a wider community a little longer or maybe a lot longer to process and move on. And then even wider than that, it takes a whole culture longer to process and move on. And even longer than that are like cultural artifacts, like things that a culture makes to respond to things. So like you look at, at like music and art, uh, normally like if something happens and in society, something major, 9-11, something happens, you're not going to like start hearing a song about it until much later, right? Because right? it takes a while to process. It also takes a while to make things. And so I feel like we're like coming, coming to like a cultural lag point where it's catching up of like how crazy 2016 was, right? Like no matter what your politics are, like 2016 was crazy and stressful like you might have firsthand suffered at it but at the very least you experience like cultural animosity and and anxiety right like i think that that would describe about anyone last year and i feel like now we're getting the albums from that <laughs> like just like in, a, in the last month we're getting that um and it's interesting how they how they sound and it's not just like a certain type of music or whatever but like, it seems like a lot of these artists, and artists are normally particularly attentive to this and, and skilled at it, better than lay people and people like me who the only instrument I play is a record player. Um, they're particularly good at realizing what kind of voice needs to be, needs to be used. Um, 
what, how to, how to kind of change the, the current voice. And so like, I'm seeing in all these voices, like they're not happy songs, um, but they're not just like mad, angry, desperate songs. And it seems like a lot of the, a lot of this art is like choosing to find some sort of like battle tested, hard won joy. And like, uh, like, if if you're wondering like specifically, I'm thinking like, like, from like Jay Z's album to like Jason Isbell's album, like all of these songs, like you start to hear it and they sound different than how their music used to sound, and and it seems like they're they're taking into account and they're trying to use honest, weighty, truthful words to set on a course of joy, even if if they're not very joyful songs like they seem like they're taking a hard turn from just being mad just being upset just being desperate because you can't stay there you just you can't stay there and for paul that he kind of it feels like he's kind of doing that too and for paul that course that we're set on runs exactly through the cross of jesus if you can it's really hard to do when you read over this, the course of the next two months. Like, try to hold one thing in your mind as you're reading all the other things. Because like, I think Paul is kind of doing that with this letter. That's like a little key to reading Philippians, is hold chapter two in your head. Like, that's the, the master story for all of this. Um, and, and of course, the master story of Philippians two, I think there's a slide for it. Uh, we won't read it because you'll you'll get this, and this is actually going to be our our confession for these next couple of months. It's a prayer for humility. The Paul's master story is of a savior Jesus who empties himself out and takes the form of a servant, a servant who submits and who's obedient to death, even death on a cross. This Christ him is like the chorus for Paul's song about joy complete. And and when we say complete joy, the, the name of our series is Joy Complete. When we say complete joy, we don't mean that our lives won't experience anything sad. Like, complete joy means that we'll share in those sufferings and be united to Jesus. You see that, that kind of word, partner, share, participation. The word is koinonia. It's, it's this fellowship that we have with Jesus that will somehow link us into this mindset, this mind of Jesus that, that somehow will like change the floor for us, like will lift up the floor on, on, on what our suffering does to us because like we can't we can't suffer more than Jesus suffered. It'll, it'll raise that floor and, and somehow like then joy instead of something that is just like a thing that we chase, it's like a thing that envelops, envelops us. It's a thing that kind of like swamps anything else, good or bad, that we're experiencing. This is how Paul is able to talk about joy from a prison cell to a persecuted church. Because this joy is different. This this joy can exist even like if you're if you can't pay your bills, you can still be joyful. This joy can exist even if you're really momentarily happy about something you know won't last. You can have joy. 
and, and so when Paul talks about this sort of word, he, uh, this, this sort of joy, he uses these like gut words, like, um, it shows up in, in our passage today. He says, you know, have the compassion of Christ Jesus. And that compassion is like, it's kind of gross. It's like the churning of your bowels. <laughs> with G- and, and that was actually a word used a lot for Jesus when he encountered someone he, that he would have compassion on them. It meant that it would wreck Jesus from his inside out. And we'll share with that with Jesus. Whenever, whenever I, I start to read these kind of Paul in prison words, I, I always think of a few people. I think of Nelson Mandela, I think of Martin Luther King, and I think of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, because they all wrote their best stuff from prison. Like, they're very Paul-like in that, even if they aren't in other ways. But Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote from a Nazi concentration camp that he, he never got out of. He wrote about this sort of joy and and this was especially at Christmas time that he talked about, which matches with our our master story of the incarnation of Jesus. So it's the joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. That's why it's invincible. That's why it's irrefutable. Like that's the kind of joy you're invited into is this invincible, irrefutable, this strong joy that's stronger than our emotions. So holding this master story in the back of your mind, Paul keys us in on two identities and two locations. Two identities and two locations um, that might not have jumped out on you because they, they, they just occur in the address. Like as he's, as he's writing the who the recipients are, he, he reveals a lot about himself uh, and a lot about his aims here. First identity that he, he reveals is that Paul uh, normally calls himself an apostle when he writes. An apostle is a sent one. And apostle is, is something that, uh, it's some kind of identity that uh, speaks of power or authority. You listen to an apostle. An apostle is like, like a pastor, kind of. You know, like, you don't, you guys don't listen to me though. Um, but if you notice in Philippians, he doesn't call himself an apostle. He just says, "This is from Paul, and this is from Timothy, and we are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ." That word "slaves" is also servants. It's it's not exactly. It doesn't exactly map onto like. U.S. history of chattel slavery, but what it is saying is something significant, that they aren't leading anything but only following Paul and Timothy from prison. That they are douloi of Jesus is the word. They're slaves, they're, they're servants. Even as the church of Philippi, one of the earliest Christian communities is being suffered, is suffering persecution, and probably hoping for good news from an inspiring figure like Paul, they get a letter from a servant, someone who's chained to Jesus. Imagine if that's primarily how we considered ourselves when we interact with others, as Christ's servants. Slaves to the one who became a slave. 
the servant of humankind. How would this change the way you relate to people at home or at church? How, how would that change the way you act in an argument? Because <laughs> servants don't have a whole lot of like capital in arguments. Like they just kind of eat it, you know. Um, but the other identity, unless we like just completely like feel bad about ourselves, which is not Paul's intent here. That's why I use it first and foremost for himself. He refers to the Philippians as holy ones. It didn't really come across very strongly in that translation that we use today. But he calls them holy ones in Philippi, saints. He calls them saints. If Paul calling himself a slave was, and therefore implying that they who would consider themselves less than Paul would also be maybe even lower on the totem pole slaves. If that's scandalous, calling these suffering normal folks in Philippi saints has to be equally scandalous just on the other end of the spectrum, right? Aren't saints supposed to be like found in basilicas and museums and stuff? Not like suffering churches and prisons and kitchens and church nurseries and like normal places, right? But also like, if you know a whole lot about like the church's saints, like most of them died, (laughs) not of natural causes. So consider that also. You see again how this vision, this spectrum of, of servant and saint might just be big enough to hold us. Like early in the church, and we, we probably need to reinstitute this because we haven't done it in a while. Um, we would have pretty like regularly testimonies um, just from people in the congregation, but we call them square halo testimonies because uh, in, in artistic depictions, you're normally used to seeing like someone has a halo, it means they're a saint or very holy. Um, if you ever see, and it's pretty rare, if you ever see a picture of someone with a square halo behind their head, it means they're not dead. It means they're a living saint, right? And so by calling these normal testimonies, and this is like y'all saying what God is doing or what God has done in your life, by calling those square halo testimonies, we're saying something pretty profound, something pretty similar to what Paul is saying to this this church in Philippi. When, when I think about y'all, um, and I think about y'all as, as saints, and I do, um, I, I especially, he didn't, he's going to kill me for doing this, but I think about like Gary as like a, a saint in our church, because Gary is grumpy a lot of time, but Gary is also like weirdly joyful for how grumpy he is. Like if, if you talk to Gary, like he he's got this like Paul style joy of like some like oftentimes some like stuff with his health and some some other stuff that he has every right to to not have joy and you'll never hear Gary complain like ever 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 hear Gary complain and I think that's that's the type of joy that's the type of saint everyday holy one of Christ Jesus that Paul's talking about. So Paul gives us two identities that we, that we hold together, slave 
and saint. He also gives two locations, two in statements for this letter. That's like the the um, like the right side of a postcard where you where you read an address of where this is going and mark the places for this good news to be received. First and foremost, these strange and surprising everyday holy ones, their first location is that they are in Christ Jesus. Before they're anywhere else, they and we are in Christ Jesus. That, in fact, is what makes us holy or set apart in the first place. Not how good you are, not how good you feel, the load-bearing part of your life that defines who you are is exactly and only in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus is exactly and only in the Father. Like if you read John's Gospel, there's all the circular lingo about I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, this sort of intimacy, this sort of location, and that's what we gain when we're in Christ Jesus. This will guard you from being up and down from circumstances. This will protect you and, and give you fellowship in your suffering. Part, a large part of the gospel promise is that in Christ, by the Spirit, God will be with you and that you, you won't necessarily be lifted out of suffering, but God will be with you and take you through suffering. And all that happens from this location in Christ Jesus. This is the irrefutable, invincible kind of joy that Bonhoeffer speaks about. When I think of that, I think of my friend Kate, um, who some of you know, she's, she is a professor at Duke uh, Divinity. And at the age of 35 with a two-year-old son, she was diagnosed with very advanced cancer and has been fighting it. Uh, for the last couple of years. And, and I see, and Kate, if you know her, is one of the most hilarious people you've ever met in your life. Like, even on chemo, she's hilarious and, like, self-deprecating and hopeful and all of that. And, and she, she's an amazing writer, and she, she, write, she writes a little bit about kind of her ongoing thought process with all this, especially with a young son. And, and one thing she wrote um, kind of evidences this, this location, this primary location in Christ. She says, cancer, as it turns out, is always trying to take everything. Yeah, once your health, mostly, but settles for happiness, strength, peace, and all your time. Later on, she says, cancer will take some things, but it can't take it all. Like that is like the one of the strongest statements of someone who has found this security, even as hair is falling out and body is weakened and future is very uncertain of someone who is finding and, and gaining a location in Christ. But that's not the only location for the recipients of this letter. This is not an, just like an otherworldly message. This letter, this word of God, is for the saints 
in Christ Jesus in Philippi, like in a place, a, a European city that is kind of described as like a miniature Rome with all its beauties and all its vices. And I think this is such a gift for us that these New Testament letters are written to real people in real places that existed and that like still exist. Has, has anyone ever been to the Holy Land at all and like been to some of these places? No one? You can raise your hand. Okay, like real places, right? Did you go to Philippi? Okay. Yeah. But like you can walk there and you can see like feasibly you can go and be like that, that was where they did church in Philippi. You can go to Rome and be like that was probably where Paul was in jail. Like, um, which is, is really wild. Like, it's wild that our Bibles are not organized, like, around, like, a table of contents for, for life's big questions or whatever. Like, they have those Bibles. You can get those Bibles. But that's not how the Bibles organize. It's not even organized, like, indexed to, like, theological topics. Like, it's helpful to have, like, a concordance, but that's not how the Bible is written. It's written around real life happening in Christian communities out of which the gospel will permeate, out of which the gospel will clash with, and out of which the gospel will cause these people in some cases to be brutalized by their neighbors. Like, again, like the, the New Testament doesn't have another word for witness that isn't our word for martyr. <laughs> Um, that's a little bit of, of how that happens in this, in this New Testament world and in our world. But we start to get an imagination that Paul um, these days might have just as easily written to the Holy Ones in Christ Jesus in Durham if he was writing us a letter or an email or a text or a snap or something, right? If that sounds bizarre that Jesus would, would call you and I and us, like, and join us at our potluck where we would, like, unscroll something and read aloud these words to the Holy Ones in Christ Jesus in Durham, in Lakewood, like, maybe consider uh, what, what that means for what we're doing, like, on Sundays and throughout the week, like, how serious and consequential that is. Like that world seems so far removed and those words are bound in a Bible and can't and like in a canon that seems so disconnected to us. But maybe what we're doing here, like potentially or actually, is very on par with what Paul and Timothy are doing. Like what would that mean for us? What might that do for how we do mission? So we have two identities and two locations. And just to, to kind of close, like, as you're thinking about joy and, and, and considering uh, this week, consider how joy is connected to both grace and peace. Like, that's, that's a stock Paul phrase, grace to you and peace, and it's always plural. It's not never grace to you, it's grace to y'all and peace in our Lord Jesus Christ. That joy is a sort of product of a kind of grace. In fact, the word is connected. Like, it's almost the same word. 
grace and joy. And that, that joy is, is also a source for peace. Anne Lamott um, is a writer. She talks about joy. She says, uh, and she connects these also. She says, peace is just joy at rest. But joy is peace on its feet, right? Uh, I think that might be kind of helpful uh, for how we consider um, what joy is. So with grace, with peace connected to, to joy, I think the good news then for us is that this elusive grace-related joy is available to the suffering church at Philippi, and it's, it's available to Paul and Timothy in a Roman jail, and it's available to us. It's available to us despite and especially through tough circumstances. And I don't necessarily think that everyone in here is having a tough circumstance today, but you will. <laughs> and there are some people who, who do. It's, it's connected and it, and it will sustain us through those circumstances all because of this master story of Jesus who grounds both our identity and our location it means that joy like gets stretched out. It, it gets stretched up between, you know, emptying and exalting in this story. And, and it gets stretched out so wide that it can hold anything that we're going to experience. Like that's, that's how strong joy is. It, it is stretched out like a, like a clothesline, but it won't snap. It'll hold us. Whether you're in a season of despair or sickness or like uh, slavery to sin or like reckoning with death, even death on a cross, or if you're in a season where things are making sense and it seems like righteousness like works or it seems like Jesus actually is victorious and God is near and on the throne, Jesus experienced all of that especially the, the former, the, the suffering part. And, and he experienced that with no signs of the latter, really. <laughs> and we are in Christ. That location is even more real than like this location under our feet. It makes us partners in this grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ participants, like co-laborers. This propels us to sort out what matters. That is what the end of our passage says. To, to find sincerity and purity. Like, uh, purity is, is not, not necessarily the best way to think about this. Like, sincerity is, is kind of like a, um, like a testing word. Like, a, uh, for some, for, to be sincere means to show it into the sunlight and so that you can see the things that don't belong or it might even be sometimes used as like a smelting term. I know all the smelters in our audience might, might know what we're talking about here. That, that something gets tested because it goes into the fire and actually comes out the other side and doesn't get burnt out. So because we're grounded in this grace and peace in Christ Jesus, we can be sincere without blemish or spot. We can be shown into the sunlight. The good news then is that we find joy 
in being made into the image of Jesus who suffered, died, and was raised, who shows us what hard-fought joy is, what it sounds like, what it looks like. When we look at Jesus, we, we see what it means to be joy, to have joy, and to bring joy. Joy expressed in love, in self-giving, in suffering with and for others. What it looks like for righteousness to grow fruit. Like, if, if you just like walk by the garden every once in a while, you see like growing fruit takes a lot of time. It, it, it happens predictably, but not automatically. It's, it's a bit of a miracle. Every time it happens, it's slowly and sneakily, but then it's harvested in plenty, and it's for the nourishing of us and for others. That's what, that's what righteousness as fruit does. It nourishes. It brings peace and healing. And it's this suffering servant Jesus that we find this kind of joy. And when we find joy, it really, it gives God so much joy. Like that end uh, of this passage when it says, to the glory and praise of God our Father. It just means that God gets enjoyment in our joy. Especially this kind of joy. So much, so much glory, so much praise just from us being fully alive and going through this in Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for these words. Lord, I pray that just this week that you might hide some of these words in our hearts. Um, Folks might take these cards and and just chew on them all week. Um, Lord, teach us joy joy that is far greater than momentary happiness um, and far stronger and more real than any suffering that we might feel. Uh, Make these, these friends, these holy ones in Christ Jesus in Durham, joyful people that spread that sort of hard fought infectious joy just to the people that we come in in contact with this week. Just every single person that we are with. May we experience joy and may we help them experience joy in Jesus. We pray all this in the strong name of the servant Jesus. Amen.